Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Matt Gazarian, here today with Adam Becker, Professor of Classics and Religious Studies in the Department of Classics and Religious Studies program at New York University. Our discussion today is about encounters between missionaries and East Syrian Christians and the development of Assyrian nationalism in the Ottoman Qajar borderlands during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The conversation will be based on Professor Becker's recent book, Revival and Reawakening, American Evangelical Missionaries in Iran and the Origins of Assyrian Nationalism, out from University of Chicago Press in 2015. The book describes how East Syrians' interactions with evangelical Christianity helped redraw conceptual boundaries, define piety in more precise terms, and create a conceptual framework in which the formation of a racialized and liberal ethnic Assyrian nationalism could come about. Professor Becker, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So before going into the book, I wanted to make sure that our listeners are all on the same page regarding the terminology for the different communities that you describe in the book. I've often come across the term Syrian, Chaldean, Nestorian, Jacobites, but before reading the book, I didn't quite understand the relationships among them or how they were all related to the modern term we use today, Assyrian. So can you give us a brief who's who about these groups and how they relate to the people we call Assyrians today? Sure. The confusion in names, in, in fact, comes out of this history that, that I, I wanted to tell. And any answer one gives in this is a political answer and can get some, someone will be upset by this. Assyrian is very commonly a secular, ethnic, national term used by people from the East Syrian tradition. Uh, however, it's used expansively to include people from all the, the various Syriac churches. So in, for some Assyrian nationalists, uh, in fact, even Maronites are Assyrians. They're just Assyrians who've forgotten their identity. Now, when I say East Syriac or Syriac churches, what I mean by that is from the 5th century onwards, there was a division among uh, the churches uh, in what's now northern Syria, southeastern Turkey, northern Iraq and central Iraq and, and western Iran, which led to what we now call the West Syrians and the East Syrians. The West Syrians are also called the Syrian Orthodox. Uh, they're also referred to as the Suryani, for example, in, in Turkey. Uh, the East Syrians historically have often been called Nestorians because of their association with a patriarch, not a patriarch, a, a kind of a father for them, but someone who's considered a heresiarch, a founder of heresy by everyone else, Nestorius. So when we hear Suryani used in Turkey today, that's a reference to what may have been West Syrian tradition? Generally, it's used because uh, historically Sur Suryaniya could be used for anyone within these Syriac churches. Mm. However, today uh, there are no East Syrians left in Turkey. So any Sur Suryani in Turkey are West Syrian, Syrian Orthodox. And these churches, despite their division in the fifth century into the East and the West, which was a, it was a theological division, they for centuries continued to actually read one another's literature. There was interaction and their liturgy uh, and their intellectual life among uh, particularly uh, elite males within the church was done in Syriac, classical Syriac, which is an ancient dialect of Aramaic. And 
Sometimes they call the Eastern churches, the Nestorians call themselves also Easterners. It really is, uh, these terms are relative and it depends on when they're identifying themselves vis-a-vis whom. So they'd call themselves Easterners if they were comparing themselves to the Jacobites, which is another term used for the Syrian Orthodox or the West Syrians, but they'd also just call themselves Christians. So we've got a wide array of different groups here that are separated from theological divides as far back as the 5th century, 4th, 5th century, and also separated by geography, by language as well? There, by the modern period, the Syrian churches, people spoke Arabic, they spoke Neo-Aramaic, in some places people seem to have spoken Kurdish, maybe Persian, but by the 19th century, the Church of the East had been fractured and w- what was originally a, a church hierarchy which expanded actually into Central Asia, like in, in the medieval period, it had shrunk and one of the primary groups of East Syrians remaining by the early 19th century were in northwestern Iran, southeastern Turkey, what's now Hakkari, and or uh, Iranian Azerbaijan. And that group, most of them tended to be subject to one of three different patriarchal lines, the Shimon line. It's just the Shimon line because they took uh, each, the patriarch would take on the name Shimon, which was not what's now basically a Hakkari city, um, the Kochani's line. Got it. And you focus mostly on the East Syrians in your book. You describe a very fluid social and political world in this sort of Ottoman Qajar borderland. There was more ambiguity, more sharing, more fluid social and political boundaries in the period. Could you talk a little about that context? Well, one significant, I'd say it's not political exactly, but I guess you know it's kind of social grouping which had uh, kind of political implications was the the tribal system in Hakkari. There were several East Syrian or Syrian tribes, uh, which functioned like tribes in the region. I mean, there's not that much different from uh, Kurdish tribes. The patriarch, the Kochani's patriarch, the one of, of the Shimon line, functioned as a kind of pan-tribal chief. And Hakkari had several tribes, and it wasn't the area wasn't subject to Ottoman authority particularly. I mean, the Ottomans would come in, and they show up, for example, in the sources once in a while. There'll be some kind of Ottoman soldier like asking for a passport, and and he'll be out of place. But the boundaries, the actual physical boundaries, were very loose, and Christians had. I mean, this is another identity that was there, and it's still there. In fact, even among after the uh, the genocide, after the expulsion of the tribes from Hakkari, even today, some Assyrians identify as from those certain tribes. And even it's amazing. They'll, I mean, it's, it was a hundred years ago, and Assyrians will talk about, oh, well, you say it, you know, you your your tribe, you guys say it this way, we say it this way, with regard to like how they pronounce or like uh, certain uh, New Aramaic words, or and there's even dialectical differences, and these are maintained as a kind of family memory of of these tribes, which are, are long, long gone. But that was another system of, of social organization in the Hakkari region, and then just east of there. Uh, through the mountains was uh, the plain of Oromia, and 
the Christians there who were also subject to the, the Shimon line, to that patriarch, uh, they tended to live in villages in contrast to the East Syrians in Hakkari, who were uh, semi-nomadic pastoralists. The ones uh, living in within the Qajar realm were villagers, farmers, living in small, small villages, sometimes Christian-only villages sometimes intermingled, for example, in, in the city of Urumiya itself, it was a majority Muslim, but there was a large Christian population there. Mm-hmm. So the picture I'm, I'm seeing here is you have the Kochani's patriarch, the Shimon line, in what is today's Turkey's southeast mountains. And around them, we have a tribal sort of political or social organization. But then that same religious authority or that same authority of the patriarch, we'll say, also extends into Qajar domains. And that's totally different. You've got a more sedentary lifestyle and different sort of political social organization. Yes. And you also have at the same time, it gets really complex. There's a competing patriarchal line to the South, a Catholic one. And then when you have missionaries come in, it gets even more complex because the missionaries are, uh, come in and they want these various East Syrians to subject themselves, uh, well, from the Protestant perspective, subject themselves to the Pope and to the, the Catholic patriarchal line. Uh, you have Protestant missionaries, some like high church missionaries like the Anglicans who want to support the Cochanis patriarch as a kind of natural Protestant, right? These, like the, the Eastern Christians are seen by some um, Protestants as natural Protestants, people who've always resisted the the tyrannical authority of the Pope. And then there are, and this is the mission that I spent the most time working on, the American missionaries who are evangelicals and just anti-authoritarian, like, I mean, they're Presbyterians and Congregationalists, and they sometimes want to work with the patriarch but ultimately, they want to get rid of any kind of like church hierarchy, like that kind of authority. And so there's a lot of different a lot of moving push, parts. pushing, pushing and pulling. Yeah. So for the concepts that sort of bring these many moving parts together, you hone in on two particular concepts for communal belonging that come up often in the evangelical press. Once the American missionaries are there, they've established their presses. Um, the two that you look at are Melat and Taipe, or which correspond to the Ottoman or Arabic Milat and Taife, um, what we would might say today are nation and sect or nation and faith. These two concepts are particularly interesting for me because I, I come across them quite often in the Armenian press and especially the Armenian evangelical press. I was wondering if you could talk a little about the importance of these terms, how they're being deployed during this period and how they change. Mm-hmm. Well, in the mission sources, particularly the American mission sources, the term that shows up more often early on is Tayepa. Which it's and it's used. Uh, I mean, a lot of the times these terms are being are used. You can just back translate the mission sources into, and it's it seems to be people. Sometimes it's nation, but nation in the sense of like a biblical nation. So it shows up a lot early on, and eventually it's 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 replaced by melat, which has its own. You know, as you know, like the, the history and I mean, in uh, in Ottoman sources and the development of mil, in, into millet even now. And so that becomes more important. But in both cases, it's what it's importing is a certain Protestant reading of of nationhood, both Republican nationhood, because these are these are Americans from the uh, early mid 
19th century with certain Republican ideas of, of the nation, but also biblical nationality. So the people of Israel, the peoples, the Gentiles, the Goyim, like these, these terms are just being translated into uh, these publications, pamphlets, books, and sermons by the missionaries for the local population. And so these local terms, there is, you do find Millet, uh, not as much, but Tayepa, it's, it's a term that shows up in the, the local language, but it, it's being drawn out and further articulated, and it becomes a term for imagining and talking about community. All right. I was actually going to ask you a little bit more about that, in particular in the case of the idea of Assyrian, the modern idea. In the seventh chapter of your book, you describe a number of factors that lead to the forging of this modern idea of Assyrian as a national identity that is imaginably separable from religion. Can you describe this transition toward a more nationally oriented discussion among East Syrians and other Syrian Christians? Yeah, part of my my argument, which, but, but when I went into this project, I originally thought, oh, well, this is interesting. Assyrian, this is a modern thing. Like, it's a modern invention. I mean, it, was, it, was, it seemed, I mean, this, is, this would offend some, some Assyrian uh, nationalists, but it just seemed obvious to me as a historian, okay, at some point, people started talking about themselves as Assyrians. This is, this is a newfangled thing. That's what I went into the project. Like, I just, that was my, my hunch, my intuition. But as I, I studied the material, what became interesting to me was how the naming Assyrian of the community, like setting, we are Assyrians, we're this ancient people. And then that whole kind of historical response to that, oh, well, then that means that we're this ancient people. And what are the implications of that? Let's write histories about that. That came very late. Uh, what I found in my sources was that early on in the missionary context, the Syrians were started talking about themselves as a nation. And this comes out of, I mean, it's a long story I can go through, but of, of uh, certain missionary practices, certain ideas being promoted by the mission. And I see this, uh, the mission as really kind of presenting a certain kind of configuration of modernity uh, in which uh, the idea of the nation can emerge. And the Syrians were talking about themselves as a nation in this missionary context before they started talking about themselves as Assyrians. Then, by it, in the, so like you can see this, for example, in the 1860s even, but then by the 1890s, they, some people started saying, okay, we're a nation, and then this historical response began. In part, as it's just uh, because there was a lot of Orientalist knowledge coming in. There was, I mean, the, the, you can find this, and I'm always, I've been always impressed by this within uh, Assyrian nationalism. You find people quoting academic works within a few years of their publications. They're following what's going on, what's being published in Europe and in the United States. And the uh, chic around uh, like the Assyrians, which you find even more so later with uh, in Egyptology, with Egyptian chic, the, the popularity of ancient Assyria uh, in the mid-19th uh, century and onwards in Europe and, and in the United States, it was also taken up by these East Syrian Christians who they started to see themselves as a nation, and they then linked this to these ancient peoples. Okay, we're a nation. We've been here a long time. That's us, Assyrian. Now, part of this, uh, one of the cute little arguments that Assyrian nationalists were making 
you can see this already by the 1890s, was that Assyrian and Syrian were etymologically connected. And then there were, you, you see these kind of poplinguistic arguments of like, oh, well, see, we were originally Assyrians, and then we lost the beginning of our name, and we've forgotten our true name. And now we're, you know, we're, we're, we're Assyrians, but that's, a, that's, that's just a sign of our lost identity. And I might add that this focus on names and names and the true identity of, of things uh, I mean, many many cultures you know, have a focus on names in this way, but it actually reflects an idea about names that you find in very traditional Syriac theology. This idea that names really reveal the essence of things. And so the fights within the community around, are we Assyrians, are we this or are we that, the stakes are so high, perhaps because there's a certain philosophy of language there that like the name really matters. It's not just an arbitrary signifier. It's, it's something that, that, that has substance to it. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Matt Gazarian, here with Adam Becker discussing American Protestant missionaries and the development of Assyrian nationalism. So I wanted to ask you about your theoretical approach to the missionary encounter. There's an older generation of scholars who have credited missionaries for bringing modernity to the region by bringing forms of education and bringing more literacy and liberal values. Another set of scholars casts missionary work as a form of cultural imperialism. Now, if I'm reading your book correctly, I see you sort of carving out your own way of thinking about this interaction. You write that the mission did not simply displace indigenous East Syrian ideas, but rather drew distinctions and mapped out territories that were at times already there within the East Syrian tradition. So I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on how you conceptualize the interactions that you have studied between East Syrians and the American missionaries and how they might differ from or draw on these modernizing or imperialist interpretations in the historiography? Well, I think at one point in the book, I, I, I was thinking about uh, imperialism and, and, and how, to, how to talk about what's going on. And I just simply say, okay, look, basically the missionaries arrive with a lot of money. I mean, they have influence. They're able to bring lots of things, move lots of people, move contraptions and books from one side of the world to the other, show up in this place, and suddenly they're having contacts with the elite in that society. They're interacting with the governor. They have sway. They're, they all seem to know one another, the people of the different Protestant missions, and all of them seem to know various diplomats, generals, people passing through. And so they have a, a certain power and a certain sway on the one hand. On the other hand, this isn't like colonial imperialism. They're not, there is no state really supporting them. So there's a certain ambivalence. Now, the, the mission spoke a language that, and this, is make, this is a very, very kind of, long, long um, uh, story, like a, the long, long durée of things. That is, they spoke a language that was recognizable, especially to elites within the church, because there was a certain shared Christian intellectual background. And this is what, in the 
passage you just quoted from the book, what I, I think I was thinking about, that there is certain ideas about religion that uh, Christians shared. And so, for example, the primary section, the first section in the main uh, mission newspaper, Rays of Light, which was published from uh, 1849 up until World War One. And this is the, the, the kind of the, the beginning of the paper, which always seemed to be the most important part, the way, how they presented things, was called Fear of God. Uh, now, Fear of God, it's, you know, piety, devotion, it's, 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 it's a, a nice title for things, but Fear of God is actually the term Dechlathalaha, uh, is the, the uh, Syriac. And it's a classical Syriac expression, although the newspaper was in Neo Aramaic, so they're using a classical ex- expression. It's an expression which is very common in uh, classical Syriac sources. Dechlitha, uh, which means fear, functions in classical Syriac texts to really mean something like religion. And it's not religion exactly in our modern sense, but it's a term that would be used, for example, in martyr texts from the 5th and 6th centuries to talk about how the Zoroastrians have their fear, their Dechlitha, whereas we have our fear. Our fear, our Dechlitha, is true. Theirs is false. So this is a term about correct belief, about uh, diversity of belief, about wrong belief, about communities and difference. It shows up in particular in martyr texts. Martyrdom is often about defining the boundaries of the community. Uh, so this is a loaded term. It has a, a whole history in classical Syriac and the missionaries who would at least openly downplay the significance of the Syriac tradition and just say, oh, this is basically as bad as Catholicism. We need to revive uh, their real Christianity through just scripture. The missionaries decided to use this term uh, at the front of their newspaper. So here, I mean, in fear of God, is it's an expression that goes back to, obviously, for example, Proverbs, like fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's, it's a biblical expression the missionaries recognized, and they drew it from this tradition, which, and, and within the Syriac tradition, it goes back to Proverbs. So it's a shared biblical tradition that was then used to articulate something a little bit different, though, because fear of God for the missionaries became religion in in a more secularized sense. And so with regard to the theoretical background of where I was coming in this, I mean, I was working on this book after several years and, and during and towards the end of it, several years of teaching classes on secularism. I mean, like Talal Assad's Formations of the Secular came out probably in 2003, I think. I was teaching grad seminars on secularism and all that, that kind of burst of energy around that issue, like in the early 2000s. So I was thinking a lot about secularism. I was thinking a lot about the secular and its Christian genealogy. And how it influences the way that we read these histories now, that are the, the categories that we think about, the fact that we think of religion as a coherent, separable part of life. I was going to ask you a bit about that, actually, because your book certainly engages with these conversations in anthropology and religious studies and history about, more broadly, about liberal assumptions in historical scholarship about religion. You mentioned possible non-liberal ways of being in the world that we might miss if we were to hold certain liberal assumptions uncritically as we read into history. We would have trouble thinking about religion as 
something other than a, a, a neatly bounded package that can be separated from a secular world. I was wondering if you could talk about your, your experience. I guess you could bring in the engaging with this literature and forming your own theoretical position and how it guided your approach in the book. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, anytime you, you, you analyze and take apart categories, you know, you start taking apart the ground <laughs> upon which you're standing. So there was this problem of I was interested in looking at the emergence of religion. And, you know, I was influenced by Assad or, I was in, or for example, like thinking about like the, the history outside of liberal terms. I was in, influenced by Webb Keen's book, Christian Moderns, Saba Mahmoud's Politics of Piety. And that whole conversation in anthropology was really where I was at. Uh, that's where I was thinking. And it is a problem if you want to you look at the history of something emerging, but this something which is so substantial and, and exists for us. Mm-hmm. Right? How do we imagine a world where religion is not religion? And then this also, I mean, one one part of this is is and I think this is done very poorly in the, in the secondary literature, in the theoretical literature, is the scholarship on nationalism, right? Because religion typically in the, in the work on nationalism is just seen as something that like, that goes away, you know, and it, it goes away and maybe it influences, you know, there's like a Durkheimian kind of thing where it's like, oh, well, like the nation comes out of religion, but that formulation, the problem with it is that it assumes that we know what religion is in, 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 in the pre-national. It's like, okay, yeah, they had religion, you know, that religion stuff. And then, you know, people still kept getting together. They renamed it and the social continued under another name. That's the nation. That's like basically Durkheim, but you you see it in a lot of the scholarship on nationalism in like the uh, 80s. Hmm. So I wanted to get beyond that and think about both the nation as something, okay, that's more obvious going back to say like Anderson, okay, the nation's invented. But that goes along with a kind of co-invention of a, a thing called religion. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to think about that too and and you know how the how the two help but however we want to put it, co-constitute one another. Sure, sure. So shifting to a more comparative question, I was wondering if you'd be willing to speculate on the evangelical and Eastern or Oriental Christian, however you'd like to say, interactions elsewhere in the region. You know, I know your work focuses on East Syrians in particular, but Copts, Maronites, Armenians, and other Christian communities in the Near East had their own encounters with American Protestants and the the moral narratives of modernity that they brought with them. What what sort of parallels would you expect to find in other missionary encounters, and uh, what aspects of the East Syrian case would you guess are unique to its own historical circumstances? Well, I I, I found one book that was useful. That I mean, it, it my work I think was in accord with a lot of his conclusions. Is Osama Mokdesi's Artillery of Heaven, and I think. One way to appreciate the significance of the missions is to avoid looking at numbers of converts, which is if you look at the numbers of actual converts, then they're insignificant. And you, we actually know how many converts because it's at least some of the missions, particularly like the American mission I, I worked on, they were so calculating about it. They would keep lists of precisely who was a convert and they would actually keep the roles up. Like if someone didn't seem to be a convert anymore, they did, they'd excise them from the list. So there, you have incredible documentation 
uh, which then leads to all types of interesting issues about like how do you know if someone's a convert, like these things about like looking into people's selves, but ignoring that. The institutions that the missionaries set up, for example, like Boazici University, like <laughs> there's right. these significant AUB. educational institutions. Yeah, AUB. American A- University I, of Cairo, if I'm not mistaken. I think AUC, but definitely yeah, AUB. The so schools publishing as well. Publishing hospitals. Right. Medical care. Uh, the mission in uh, Urumia, they set up a, a whole separate hospital. There was a dispensary. There, I mean, it was there was actually uh, at the the school, which was kind of like a higher level high school, which then became a college. They then set up a medical school, which was then linked to the hospital. This is the only hospital in the city. And if you and if if you just do a prosopography of who's significant in certain institutions from a certain point a period onwards like it's oh this person went to a mission school oh this person went to a mission school right so you see an an institutional link among a lot of the different missionary encounters you might expect to find from egypt to anatolia to levant to urmia yeah and with and with the mission in urmia in particular you have at the mission press the the, the mission press is where the first nationalist newspaper was published. It wasn't the missionaries' idea, but the missionaries said, yeah, okay, you guys who were all, almost almost all of them were alumni of the mission school. Some of them were Catholic. Some of them were actually converted Presbyterians. Some of them were Orthodox. Uh, Some of them were Anglican. But they were all alumni of an American evangelical school and they got together. It was actually the alumni association. <laughs> like they decided, Oh, let's make a newspaper. Oh, let's do it on this press. So, I mean, this is, I think I don't know the other uh, sources nearly as well, but it's, it's transparent. It's obvious in the case of the American mission in Iran that the emergence of nationalism is it's directly linked to this particular mission it's linked to other missions. I think one, I mean, there's definitely limitations in my sources. I don't read Russian, for example, and the Orthodox became very important at the, in the latter part of the period. But it's, it's obvious that the Americans uh, in Iran were significant. And also look at, like, at the um, uh, constitutional revolution in the early 20th century. There were uh, in Americans involved. Yeah, in Iran. There were Americans involved in that, and they were Americans who were from the mission. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So something else I really enjoyed about the book was that, especially for someone who works on Ottoman history, it marshals a set of sources that are not often used or not typical of the bibliographies of texts that we might have talked about on previous podcasts. So I'm wondering if you be able to talk about those a bit, you know, the process of finding these sources, working in these archives, and how they ultimately contributed to your intervention. Well, you know, it's, it's gratifying, if I can be a brat about this, that you've asked me. I had trouble at first getting this book published. I've had little trouble with most of my, my prior publications. I'd send things off. They were, people would say, okay, yeah, great, we'll publish it. I had trouble getting any interest from a number of presses. I would get, you know, these form responses or no response at all. One person at a press who was very nice about it, but a press that publishes a lot of Ottoman stuff, said to me, yeah, it looks really interesting, but it's not Ottoman enough. And, you know, of course, like I'm not an Ottoman historian. I'm not involved in like, you know, all the kind of particular conversations of that uh, discipline. But I don't know. It was about 
people in the Ottoman Empire and in the border region, and it was about missionaries there. Like it, it was like it, 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 it wasn't Ottoman. I don't know what you know. I mean, I know what that meant. And on the one hand, on the other hand, it's like, well, maybe that's a problem, <laughs> but not from not my problem though. <laughs> but uh, yeah, my sources are anomalous, and it's very rare that anyone can read these things. I mean, I come from uh, I have a cl- classical training in like Latin and Greek, and I t- like teach classical Syriac, so I'm like a kind of philologue, like a language person. And I originally got interested in my sources. One, I was just curious about like, wait, how did these people start calling themselves Assyrians? But then it was also just a linguistic interest. I was curious about Neo-Aramaic and the several dialects of Neo-Aramaic and there's a certain kind of printed form of the language that the Americans promoted. Uh, and so I just was curious to learn this language. And then it turned out I, I had studied um, like Arabic and Turkish and Persian before. And it turned out that this modern Aramaic had all this it was a hodgepodge. It had these idioms and then words from these other languages. So it was just very fun. And originally I thought I would write on all of the missions, just, okay, let's look at all these missions and let's look at the origins of nationalism. And then I realized that the Americans were more important, one, and two, that I had plenty of sources on that. Now the sources, uh, the printed works from the mission are in a number of collections. Uh, the they're at uh, Harvard, the Rare Book uh, Library. There, some things are at Yale. The British Library has a large collection. I spent a lot of time there, going through newspapers. The Presbyterian Historical Society in Philadelphia is, has, has a great archive, mostly later things, and then also the New York Public Library. Just coincidentally, I think because of mission networks going through New York, somehow a, a lot there's a lot of books at the New York Public Library, and a few Syriac manuscripts that were passed through the missions. But, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing because how, how does, you know, it's, this is the problem with, with disciplines. Like, you know, I could say, oh, yes, Ottoman historians who are interested in this material should learn this language. Well, you know, if I'm talking to a graduate student, I would maybe not recommend, like, oh, yeah, you should spend the next two, three years. right learning new aramaic when you know you have ottoman and everything else to learn so it's a problem no absolutely and i think it it shows how much that the approach of any history and perhaps especially ottoman history that it's a collaborative effort that that with so many languages so many peoples in such a wide sprawling empire like it cannot be done by any one person or group of people and cannot be compartmentalized into one or two languages it's it's a broad effort so we benefit. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. For those of you who want to find out more, pick up a copy of Adam's book, Revival and Reawakening, published by University of Chicago Press. You can also visit us online at www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we invite you to leave comments and questions on the topics that we discussed today, and where you can also access a bibliography for today's episode. We'd also encourage you to join us on Facebook, where you can stay in touch with our community of over 20,000 listeners and access news about upcoming series and episodes. That's all for today. So until next time, take care.